June employment numbers come out this morning on the news that private companies added a half million jobs last month. It's Friday, July 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, despite more efforts and money going toward reducing homelessness, the number of unhoused people in many U.S. cities keeps rising. Also, reports that the Wall Street Journal reporter detained in Russia for the last 100 days might soon be released. Frankly, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen. It's all, at this stage, speculation. We're dealing with Russia here. It could pan out any which way. And the flaws in water testing at some Massachusetts beaches to make sure it's safe for swimming. Your bacteria results are always a day late. The technology just isn't there yet to allow accurate real-time prediction of water quality. It's 7.01. I'm Luis Schiavone. Weeks after Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Beijing, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in China meeting with Premier Li Qiang. It's another effort by the Biden administration to stabilize U.S.-China relations. Yellen told American business leaders prior to that meeting that while there are trade issues, the two nations should not allow disagreements to lead to misunderstandings that fray relations. The decoupling of the world's two largest economies would be destabilizing for the global economy and it would be virtually impossible to undertake. Meeting with Premier Li, Yellen said the U.S. is seeking a competition with China that is healthy, not winner-take-all. Democratic legislators in Maine have approved a bill to expand access to abortion later in a pregnancy. As Steve Missler of Maine Public Radio reports, the measure would give the state the most liberal abortion law in the nation. In Maine, abortions after around 24 weeks of gestation are currently allowed only to protect the life or health of the mother. The proposal from Democratic Governor Janet Mills would allow the procedure whenever a doctor deems it medically necessary. The bill has energized abortion opponents who have labeled it as barbaric and extreme. They've also floated the prospect of organizing a people's veto campaign to overturn it. Democrats who have advanced an array of bills expanding access to abortion argue that the bill codifies that the procedure is a decision between a woman and her doctor. The governor is expected to sign the bill next week. For NPR News, I'm Steve Missler in Augusta, Maine. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is touring Eastern European capitals to drum up support for NATO membership ahead of the alliance's summit next week. Esme Nicholson reports this comes while the majority of members will not consider Ukraine's bid until Russian forces have withdrawn. Speaking in the Bulgarian capital, Sofia, Zelensky spoke plainly about the need for continued support in defending Ukraine against Russian aggression. Occupiers came to our land, he said, adding that they killed, tortured and kidnapped Ukrainian children. In the Czech capital, Prague, Zelensky said an ideal result of next week's NATO summit would be an invitation to Kyiv to join the alliance. Czech President Petra Pavel dampened expectations, saying that membership negotiations could only begin once the war is over. For NPI News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. The average temperature on this planet set a new unofficial high yesterday. It was the third time in a week that has already gone down. It's the hottest on record. According to data from the University of Maine's Climate Reanalyzer, Earth's average hit 63 degrees Fahrenheit yesterday over the 62.9 set Tuesday and equal to Wednesdays. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Cambridge-based Biogen is celebrating the federal approval of its Alzheimer's disease treatment. It's called Lakembi, and as WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, this is the first time the Federal Food and Drug Administration has fully approved a medication shown to slow the disease's progression. Lakembi does not reverse or cure Alzheimer's, but the clinical trial suggests it slows cognitive decline by 27% over a year and a half compared to a placebo. In a statement, Biogen CEO hailed the regulator's decision as a breakthrough and said the company is proud to be at the forefront of ushering in a new era for a disease that was previously considered untreatable. Biogen has been developing the drug in partnership with a Japanese pharmaceutical company since 2014. Medicare is expected to cover the medication, which the pharmaceutical company says will cost more than $26,000 a year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. We're learning more about the police shutdown of beaches in Dennis on the 4th of July. Local law enforcement say they closed Mayflower Beach and several other nearby spots on Tuesday because of what they call a massive drunken party. Police say people began arriving at dawn, and by afternoon, the crowds had swelled into the thousands. They say they are working on a plan for next year to better better handle the crowds. State officials say there will not be a repeat of last year's lifeguard show. They say all but two of the state's public pools are fully staffed. Brian Arrigo is commissioner of the Department of Conservation and Recreation. We're anticipating a very busy summer and we're prepared for that. And that's why we put such a push on getting our lifeguards and making sure that water safety is a top priority for the Commonwealth. Arrigo advises if you are swimming somewhere without a lifeguard, be sure not to swim alone. Brandeis University officials are apologizing for an ad campaign that offended some members of the Orthodox Jewish community. The national campaign referenced the school's Jewish founding and used the tagline, Anything But Orthodox. Orthodox students at Brandeis tell the Boston Globe they met with school leaders and they are satisfied that their concerns were addressed. The time is six minutes past seven. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. In sports, Red Sox topped the Texas Rangers 10-6 at Fenway last night. The Sox will host the Oakland A's tonight. And a men's professional flag football league will begin playing in Boston next spring. The city's one of six inaugural teams for the new American Flag Football League. The league's owners tell the Boston Globe they plan to incorporate a women's league into the men's game by 2025. Our weather forecast says mostly sunny today, highs up around 90 degrees. Tonight we'll see a few clouds with lows near 70. Partly sunny tomorrow, maybe some afternoon showers, temperatures in the 80s. And for Sunday, mostly cloudy and evening showers likely. Temperatures near 80 degrees. It is 72 degrees in Boston. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. 
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. In a few minutes, we're going to take a look at why so many people in America are going without stable housing or living on the street. But first, the controversy over cluster munitions. The Biden administration is expected to announce a new $800 million aid package for Ukraine, and the package is expected to include those weapons. Ukraine has been asking for them, but the U.S. has resisted sending them because of concerns about risk to civilians. New research from Human Rights Watch shows that these weapons are being used by Russia and Ukraine and have already led to numerous civilian deaths and injuries. One of the leading voices opposing the use of these weapons is the U.S. campaign to ban landmines and cluster munition coalition. Sira Agulabdala chairs that group and is with us now to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So thank you for joining us. So more than 120 countries have signed on to an international ban on cluster munitions. The U.S., Russia, and Ukraine are not among them. So could you just briefly describe the dangers that these weapons pose? Yes, um, that's correct, Michelle. So cluster munitions are, um, are horrific weapons for many, many reasons. And Really, the folks who are making the decision to potentially transfer these weapons know these, um, and still uh, are, and still are not adhering to the dangers um, through various reports and history um, that you've mentioned. Right. So these cluster munitions are indiscriminate. Uh, once they're scattered, they're scattered through a vast amount of areas. And they have very, very high failure rates, and which means that these cluster bombs, once they're dropped, they'll continue to impact civilian lives for decades to come, um, as well as, you know, killing civilians today. So the, the U.S. says that the, or U.S. officials say that the failure rate of the weapons that in the U.S. arsenal, which they would potentially transfer to Ukraine, that, that the failure rate is, is much less and that that lessens the danger. Do you not buy that? I would say that, um, you know, these, the failure rates that are reported uh, from the Department of Defense are not as reliable. And I really point to the 2022 Congressional Research Service report, right? Uh, this outlines that the manufacturers claim that the failure rates are between 2 to 5%, um, but mine clearance experts, um, you know, point to a rate that are higher at about 10 to 30%. Um, you know, I'll also point out that um, the cluster munitions that are currently in the U.S. arsenal um, are decades old, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that the, um, the, there's wear and tear in these weapons, right? That's why it has expiry dates. And um, once they're kept unused, uh, these dud rates or failure rates um, will continue to increase. You know, it just just seems like this is all a series of bad choices here. But Ukraine says it needs these cluster munitions for its counteroffensive against Russia, that these areas are already dotted with landmines. And I think the further argument that Ukraine would make is if Russia is using these cluster munitions, why shouldn't Ukraine do the same? And, you know, as I said, it's a series of, of, of bad choices in an already terrible and brutal situation. But how would you respond to that? Yeah, um, you're absolutely correct, uh, Michelle. And I would say that um, I would urge Ukraine, Ukrainian leaders as well as U.S. leaders who are making these decisions to look at history. And for the United States of America, our own history in countries like Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, to name a few, right? Um, learn from the impacts and the legacies of wars that this will have on human lives 
human lives, you know, lives of civilians who have a name, who have mothers, who have fathers, who cares, who cares about them. Um, you know, one of the uh, the things that I get to do as part of my role at Legacies of War, as well as being chair of the coalition, is meet with countless uh, victims who have been impacted by cluster munitions. And I'll just point to one example in my birth country of Laos. You know, I recently visited and spoke to a gentleman named um, Father Yong Kam, who lived through the war as a child, who was trying to okay. survive in a foul trench. And decades later, his okay. son, who just turned 21 years of age, okay. um, died while collecting woods and scrap from cluster munitions. Well, thank you for so sharing this- that story with us, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this. That's Sarah Gulabdella. She's the chair of the U.S. campaign to ban landmines and cluster munition coalition. Sarah, thank you for sharing these insights with us. Thanks, Michelle. Homelessness in this country keeps going up. Los Angeles and New York City declared a record number of people without housing this past week, part of a steady rise since 2017. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is here to help us understand what's going on. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. So cities have put a lot of money and effort into reducing homelessness. L.A. Mayor Karen Boss even ran on this issue. Why is this problem seems why does it seem so intractable? Uh, Well, you know, for sure, we do see cities really struggling with homeless encampments. This is hard. But experts tell me it's not like programs to move people into housing don't work. Los Angeles helps thousands find housing every year. The problem, they say, is that even more people keep losing housing because it is increasingly unaffordable. So nationwide, the places with the most homelessness are those where you have poverty and high housing costs. So tell us more about the people who are losing their housing. Um, How do they describe what's happening to them? So there's a landmark study just out that surveyed thousands of people without homes in California, and researchers interviewed hundreds of them. Margot Cashel at the University of California, San Francisco, says many describe this slow slide as they struggled to keep paying rent. Mm. Um, they may have lost income, had their hours cut at work, or some lost a job because of a health crisis, or the rent just went up. Um, Cashel says a lot of people crowded in with relatives or friends. And we found that those relationships, when they fell apart, fell apart quickly. People only had one day's warning. You know, when you're the 10th person in a one-bedroom apartment, not that surprising that there would be conflict there. Or sometimes people just felt like they could no longer impose. And to put uh, numbers on the financial disconnect here, for the people who became homeless in that survey, their median monthly household income was $960. Hmm. The median rent for a one-bedroom apartment in California is $1,700. That is a huge disconnect. I mean, you've reported on how the U.S. needs more affordable housing uh, and cities are spending more to build this. What's not working? You know, even with more building, the housing shortage is in the millions. Um, Steve Berg with the National Alliance to End Homelessness also says zoning laws, some of which date back to segregation, by the way, Hmm. make it really hard to build apartments in residential neighborhoods. You hear of places where they're trying to build new affordable apartment buildings and the powers to be in the city don't want to have it. You know, neighbors will say, we don't want low-income people living here, and they'll stop the housing from being built. 
Berg also says housing that's built is affordable and does get built. It's not always cheap enough for the lowest income families. And he says more of it needs to be. Well, to wrap this up, I mean, building new housing also takes a lot of time. What can be done to prevent people from losing housing in the first place? You know, at the top of that list would be expanding federal housing subsidies. Right now, only one in four people who qualify actually get them, and they're really hard to use. Uh, in fact, many landlords refuse to accept housing vouchers. So there could be more programs to help people find places that do. Also, Margot Cashel of UCSF would like to see more ways to catch people at risk of becoming homelessness. You know, you could target healthcare clinics or social service agencies. In her survey, she was just shocked by how many people did not reach out anywhere for help as things were falling apart. That's NPR's Jennifer Ludden. In Miami, Walt Nada, an aide to former President Donald Trump, has pleaded not guilty to federal charges. Nada is accused of conspiring with Trump to withhold classified documents and obstruct a federal investigation. Trump was arraigned last month on similar charges and others and also entered a not guilty plea. NPR's Greg Allen has this report from Miami. Walt Nada was with the Navy when he began working at the Trump White House in the mess. He hit it off with then-President Trump and became his personal aide always nearby to bring him Diet Cokes and other things. When Trump left office, Nada left the Navy and went with him to Mar-a-Lago. According to the federal indictment, Nada played a key role in helping Trump conceal and withhold classified documents. Prosecutors say he moved dozens of boxes at Mar-a-Lago at Trump's direction. Afterwards, they allege he lied about his actions to federal investigators. Nada faces, along with Trump, five counts of concealing or withholding documents and taking part in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. In court yesterday in Miami, Nada's Washington, D.C.-based attorney, Stanley Woodward, told a magistrate judge his client was pleading not guilty to all five charges. Judge Edwin Torres asked Nada if he'd read the indictment, and he said, yes, Your Honor, his only words while in court. Also with Nada was his new Florida-based lawyer, Sasha Dadan. She's a former public defender with little experience in the federal judicial system. Nada faces five federal counts, fewer and less serious than the 31 counts facing Trump. Even so, a guilty verdict on all five charges could carry a significant sentence. Former federal prosecutor David Weinstein says if Nada decides to cooperate with the government, his sentence would be reduced. So he has to decide, is it in his best interest to maintain a unified front because he believes the government can't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt? Or does he need to strike out on his own and cut the best deal that's available for him one complicating factor is that Nada's legal fees are being paid for by Trump's political action committee. Prosecutors reportedly have tried to pressure Nada to cooperate with investigators, but for now he appears to be standing by and is still working for Donald Trump. A federal magistrate has ordered the two men not to discuss the case with each other. A hearing is set for next Friday before U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon. Prosecutors are asking for the trial to be delayed until December to give them time to get ready. Trump's lawyers are expected to ask for a further delay until next fall, maybe even after the presidential election. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition later today, the Labor Department reports on the strength of the job market in June, and the Federal Reserve is watching closely. It's 20 minutes past 7. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? 
to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Violence erupted across France after the fatal police shooting of a teen. President Macron has in part blamed video games for the clashes, and he's not the first world leader to use this widely debunked theory. Whatever may be going on in France, whatever violence is occurring, it certainly is not due to violence in video games. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. In our forecast, sunshine today with highs around 90 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds, lows near 70. For the weekend, partly sunny tomorrow. Some afternoon showers are possible. It should be in the 80s. Clouds on Sunday with a chance of evening showers and highs near 80 degrees. It's 73 degrees right now in Boston. This time of year, you want to put on some sunscreen before spending time outside. And right now at WBUR.org, get the three key principles to using sunscreen properly and protecting yourself. You can also learn more in our Weekender email newsletter. Sign up at WBUR.org newsletters. Support for NPR comes from this station, And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Reality TV and talk shows have mostly steered clear of themes about human-caused climate change. But as NPR's Chloe Veltman reports, some unscripted programs are finding ways to slip information about climate change and sustainable living onto our screens. When Recipe for Disaster premieres on the CW network next month, it'll dish up plenty of the sugary and salty ingredients viewers have come to expect from cooking contests on reality TV. Is recipe for disaster, where professional chefs and their buddies who are terrible at cooking. Is this a pomegranate? <laughs> compete to make spectacular dishes while battling ridiculous disasters. But the show's producers also mix in the reality TV equivalent of lean proteins and veggies. Recipe for Disaster will feature chefs who cook with sustainable ingredients. I'm Charlene and I'm a vegan chef. And meat and dairy free cooking challenges. I'm making a uh, vegan meatloaf with cremolata and a beetroot puree. Data from Statistica shows roughly a third of U.S. adults currently watch reality TV. A couple of years ago, if you'd brought up talking about climate on screen, people would think it was crazy and they wouldn't even touch the subject. But Recipe for Disaster executive producer Kyle Zezzo says attitudes have started to shift. And when you talk to buyers now, maybe they don't exactly know how to do it, but the door is more open to it. Scenes modeling sustainable behavior 
behaviours or highlighting the impact of climate change have been cropping up lately in shows as diverse as the paranormal reality series Ghost Adventures. With global warming and with climate change, things are moving around in a way that they didn't normally do. And talk shows, like Jane Fonda's appearance a few months ago on The Kelly Clarkson Show. There'd be no climate crisis if it wasn't for racism. According to a forthcoming University of Southern California study, nearly 30,000 mentions of climate change-related keywords appeared across every category of unscripted TV between last August and this February. Erica Rosenthal is the director of research at USC's Norman Lear Center, the group behind the study. So that included home shows, food shows, docu-series, even sports. So that was really a surprising and exciting finding. An unlikely star of the climate change and reality TV universe is the car racing show Extreme E. One wrong judgment and you're going for a ride. In the series, electric SUVs try to outpace each other in remote parts of the world hit hard by climate change. Last year, Extreme E reached 135 million viewers across the globe. In climate change, everyone needs to win or we all lose. But unscripted shows like this one that center climate change as a topic or even mention the term directly are still relatively rare. USC's Erica Rosenthal says the majority approach the topic sort of sideways. The most commonly used terms in the study were vegan, vegetarian, insulation and solar. The term climate change itself represented just 4% of all of the keyword mentions we came across. Max Boykoff is an environmental studies professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. He studies the intersection of mass media and climate change. Boykoff says he's not surprised that unscripted TV producers tend to sneak climate change adjacent material into their shows rather than address the topic head on. Unscripted television is a way to get into the homes of people who otherwise may not take interest in climate change, who otherwise may see it as yet another set of challenges that they just don't want to have to deal with. But Boykoff says producers need to be bolder, since the medium has the power to reach so many people. Using that influence only to focus on small behavioural changes isn't enough. We ought not get caught up in just using a mug instead of a paper cup and thinking that we've done our job. Boykoff says climate change is a collective action problem at a global scale. Reality TV can do more to reflect this reality. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This morning, we're going to take a quick journey to the tall grass prairie of central Kansas. NPR's Brian Mann went for a trail run surrounded by birdsong and sent us this audio postcard. Just before dawn, I let myself in through one of the cattle gates in the tall grass prairie national preserve north of Wichita. These fences maintained by the National Park Service actually keep a bison herd from roaming outside the preserve's 11,000 acres. I can't see any of the big animals from here, but as I lace up my sneakers to run, I realize the fields around me are flush with birds. I set off running west on the gravel trail, climbing toward an enormous full moon that hangs just above the horizon. It is like a sea of grass around me. There's great waves of hills rising up and the dawn light is just coming over the horizon. The birds, I mean, it's just crazy. At this hour, I'm the only human here. 
But up ahead, I see the herd of 50 or so bison, shaggy, big-shouldered beasts. They've gathered across the path, blocking it. I want to keep my distance, so I turn and wade into the waist-high grass. Then on a ridge ahead of me, maybe a football field away, a massive bull lumbers into view. Dancing around him are these calves, like sprinting around through the grass, going in mad little playful dashes. I back away, turning down into a valley along a muddy creek past a grove of cottonwood trees. There are wildflowers, just wildflowers everywhere. And, you know, I think of this as being kind of a rough, arid country, sort of cowboy country, but the wildflowers are just as delicate as you can imagine. Before running back to the gate, I stop and just look. Prairie like this used to cover 170 million acres of North America, most of it gone now. But standing here, I can see no human footprint. There are bison and swales of sweetgrass all the way to the horizon and a vast blue sky, all completely wild. Brian Mann, NPR News in the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today's top stories are next. And coming up at 745 on Morning Edition, are Massachusetts beaches safe for swimming? We'll have a report on some of the flaws in the water testing system for state beaches. Coming to WBUR City Space on July 20th is the latest in our curated cuisine series. This time, the focus is on barbecue. There will be a competition among chefs and plenty of food to sample for both meat eaters and vegetarians. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 7.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Despite public concerns, Japan's nuclear regulator says it will allow the release of treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the sea. The announcement comes 12 years after an earthquake and tsunami destroyed the plant's cooling systems, resulting in the meltdown of three reactors and the release of large amounts of radiation. Rafael Grossi is head of the U.N.'s nuclear watchdog. He toured the facility this week and spoke to reporters earlier today. Some people may never, never accept this or may always harbor suspicion, skepticism. This is logical. It's human nature. South Korea's government says it supports the decision. Later today, the Biden administration is expected to announce it's sending cluster bombs to Ukraine to be used against Russian forces. NPR's Greg Myrie in Kyiv says many nations oppose their use. Some bomblets are duds. They don't detonate. They're small. They remain on the ground. They can become embedded just below the surface. So years later, after a war is over, civilians can walk through these areas and step on the bomblets, causing them to explode and inflicting injury or death. For this reason, human rights groups say they shouldn't be used, really for the same reason they oppose landmines. This is NPR News.
Secretary of State Antony Blinken is launching an international effort today to crack down on the manufacturing and illegal trafficking of fentanyl and other synthetic drugs. As NPR's Michelle Kellman reports, one key country is not taking part. Dozens of countries and several international organizations are taking part in the virtual meeting to coordinate the fight against the illicit trade in synthetic drugs. Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Todd Robinson says China was invited too. We don't have any indication at the moment that they're going to participate. But what I would say is this is the beginning of the process. And our hope is that all responsible countries will eventually uh, participate. And he's hoping that other countries that are joining this new coalition will persuade China to help tackle this global problem. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Authorities in New York City say a crash involving a double-decker tour bus and a second bus in Manhattan yesterday sent 18 people to hospitals. Many of those hurt suffered head and neck injuries along with cuts and bruises and suspected fractures. That's according to a deputy EMS chief. The latest numbers on employment in the U.S. are due out next hour from the Labor Department. Economists are forecasting a slowdown in hiring as compared to the month of May. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. State transportation leaders say so far so good. With the closure of the Sumner Tunnel, the link between East Boston and downtown closed Wednesday and will remain closed through the end of August. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says having the holiday this week has helped. Next week, holiday travelers all come back, and that's typically when we're going to see a spike in uh, the number of people on the roadway. One of the things that we are really, really stressing to, to folks is that there's other modes of transportation, if you're coming from the North Shore especially, where the majority of our commuters are coming from through this area. Right now, the backup to get into the Ted Williams Tunnel on Route 1A South begins at the exit for Logan Airport. To help commuters, the blue line of the T is fare-free. There are also reduced fares on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. We have a guide to help you through the closure on the front page of WBUR.org. A Superior Court judge has ruled that a South End affordable housing group can keep its properties, and that's after a long court battle with an investor. WBUR's Beth Healy has more on a case that's being widely watched in housing circles. The decision was a victory for Tenants Development Corporation, a nonprofit that's provided housing for low- and moderate-income families for decades. The judge ruled the investor, Alden Torch Financial, could not force a sale of the South End buildings to a third party. But he also handed the investors a partial win, saying TDC must pay them millions of dollars more than planned to acquire the property. TDC's lawyer, David Davenport, says they may appeal that part of the ruling. We believe they should be responsible to pay their own tax liability associated with their highly profitable investment. Lawyers for Alden Torch declined to comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. A century-old library book that was never returned has found its way back to the New Bedford Public Library. A librarian in West Virginia discovered the book as part of a donated collection. The book, titled An Elementary Treatise on Electricity, was checked out in 1903. Despite being missing for 120 years, the late fee for the book is only $2. The library says it won't be collecting the late fee. 
in sports. Red Sox beat the Texas Rangers 10-6 to at Fenway last night. The Sox begin a three-game series against the Oakland A's tonight. And our weather forecast, sunny today and hot. Highs around 90 degrees. Tonight, increasing clouds with lows near 70. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, although there is a chance of some scattered afternoon showers. Temperatures will be in the 80s tomorrow and on Sunday, cloudy with highs near 80 degrees. It is 73 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10, this and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Job growth has been remarkably resilient over the last 12 months, with more than 4 million jobs added. Forecasters keep expecting a slowdown in hiring, but it hasn't really materialized yet. For more, we're joined by NPR Scott Horsley. Scott, hello. Good morning, Rob. So May was another surprisingly strong month for job growth. What's the outlook for June? Once again, forecasters are anticipating that hiring will cool off a bit, but they could be in for another surprise. Hmm. Just yesterday, the payroll processing company ADP issued its own tally of job growth for June, and it showed nearly half a million jobs added that month. Now, that would be a big increase from an already big number in May, and it would be about double what forecasters have predicted for June. Uh, A warning, though, ADP's numbers are not very reliable when it comes to foreshadowing what the official government jobs numbers will show. That said, you can't dismiss the ADP report out of hand. Uh, We do know that consumers continue to spend money on things like restaurant meals and recreation. And ADP's Neela Richardson says that's where her company is seeing a lot of new jobs being added. We're seeing that consumer-facing services are really leading the way in last month's job creation. Essentially, jobs are following the consumer. They may be hesitant to spend on big-ticket items, but they are more willing to spend on travel, on retail, on the very industries that we've discussed. A survey of business managers released yesterday also hinted at strong employment growth in services. Uh, There was no hint of recession in that uh, business outlook, uh, and that's in stark contrast to a separate survey of manufacturing managers, which found more factories cutting jobs than adding workers in June. Okay, so it sounds like kind of a a two-speed economy with some employers and, and some industries adding workers faster than others. That's right. And and that's not surprising given the way the Federal Reserve has aggressively raised interest rates for over a year now in its battle to control inflation. Uh, some industries are more sensitive to rising interest rates than others. Uh, manufacturing is particularly sensitive. So not a surprise to see a slowdown in job growth there. Or, ordinarily, you would think construction would also be hard hit by rising interest rates, but construction employment's actually held up pretty well. And Richardson, who was a housing economist before she joined ADP, says home builders are actually staying busier than you might expect, even though costly mortgage rates have put a damper on the overall housing market. Usually about 10 to 15 percent of that market is new construction. Currently, new home sales are 30 percent of the market because of the lack of existing homes. 
And as a result of those robust new home sales, uh, construction companies continue to add workers. We'll see if that trend uh, extended into June. So what about those workers? Are there enough people to fill all these jobs? You know, we continue to hear about worker shortages in some industries, uh, notably healthcare, but overall, those complaints have quieted a bit. You know, more people have been joining the workforce in recent months, and that's made the competition for workers a little bit less frantic. Uh, that also shows up in the moderation of wage gains. Wages are still going up, but not as fast as they had been. Uh, and that's actually probably comforting for the Federal Reserve, which has been worried that if wages rise too quickly, that would put more upward pressure on inflation. Uh, what's more, even though wage gains have cooled in recent months, their wages are now going up faster than prices. So workers are finally seeing a real increase in their buying power. Uh, that said, the battle against inflation is not over. The Fed's still expected to raise interest rates again this month. And that sent the stock market tumbling yesterday with the Dow falling more than 360 points. That's NPR Chief Economist Correspondent Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. Today marks 100 days since Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich was detained in Russia. Moscow accuses the journalist of espionage, a charge that he, the paper, and U.S. officials vehemently deny. Gershkovich is the first Western journalist to be held in Russia since the Soviet era, and the charge could send him to prison for up to 20 years. But there are some new reports that a prisoner swap may be under consideration. Earlier, I spoke with Emma Tucker, who is the Wall Street Journal's editor-in-chief. We spoke after the U.S. ambassador to Russia was able to meet with Gershkovich this week for only the second time since the reporter was detained. So I started by asking her what she was able to find out about how he's doing. We were really relieved and pleased that Lynn Tracy was granted the visit because since April the 17th, he had had no consular access whatsoever, which is really unprecedented, um, even in a situation like this. What we do know, according to her, is that he's doing okay, he's in good health, and he's in relatively good spirits. When he appeared in court uh, a couple of weeks ago, his parents were there and there were cameras inside the court. And I have to say, you look at him and you think, wow, here's someone who's been in prison nigh on 100 days, and he's managing to look cheerful, he's managing to smile to his parents, he looks animated, he's clearly cracking jokes, but that's the kind of guy he is. So you have not had any direct contact with him? No, we have no direct contact with him. The only contact we have with him is via his Russian lawyers, who are doing a magnificent job on the ground in Moscow. We have a, a video on our website to mark 100 days, another interview with his parents. Well, speaking of his parents, his parents both fled the Soviet Union. How are they doing, if I may ask? They are very resilient, but as you can imagine, it's traumatic. The, the country that they fled from has now captured their son. Their two children, Evan and his older sister, Danielle, were born in the U.S. They were born and brought up in New Jersey, um, and they were educated here. Evan himself loves Russia, he loves the people, he loves the culture, and this is what made him such an effective uh, reporter while he was in Russia, because he could really navigate uh, Russian society um, thanks to his background. You mentioned that his Russian lawyers have been in contact with him. What do we know about the current state of his legal proceedings? 
He is currently on pre-trial detention at Le Fortovo prison in Moscow. The last time he appeared in court, that pre-trial detention was extended. The US government then appealed that extension, uh, which is why he was back in court. We had very, very low expectations for that hearing and no special um, concessions were granted. Uh, he remains behind bars on pre-trial detention. The next time we expect to see him in court is the end of August. So there are new reports of a possible prisoner swap that has been sort of hinted at by the Kremlin. Have you heard such reports yourself? And what might that look like? I saw the the comments from the Kremlin spokesman. Um, We don't know what he was talking about. We have no idea. Um, We have heard nothing official on this front. And frankly, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen. It's, It's all at this stage speculation. We're dealing with Russia here. It could pan out any which way. Our focus is on Evan, his well-being, and the need to get him out as soon as possible. Emma Tucker is the Wall Street Journal's editor-in-chief. We're talking about the continued detention of Evan Gershkovich. He has been held now in Moscow for 100 days. Emma Tucker, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, the FDA has granted full approval to Lakembi, the first drug shown to slow down Alzheimer's disease. Cambridge-based Biogen helped develop the drug. In our forecast, mostly sunny today, highs around 90. Clouds tonight, lows near 70. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. In business news, the professional services company Deloitte plans to move its Boston office from the Back Bay to the Financial District. The company has signed a long-term lease for four floors of the Winthrop Center skyscraper. Deloitte hopes to move into the building next year. It says the building's accommodations for hybrid work were a major factor in the move. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants Bed Bath & Beyond to give its employees severance pay. The company tried to avoid paying severance to some workers after going bankrupt earlier this year. Warren signed on to the letter with New Jersey Senator Cory Booker asking Bed Bath & Beyond for more information. Warren says the company has a responsibility to pay its employees. There's been no response yet from the retailer. The time is 7.46. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. 
The rainy July 4th holiday forced cookouts to move indoors and fireworks were competing with clouds. The weather also led to some beaches being closed. 20 saltwater beaches were listed as unsafe for swimming because of high bacteria counts on Wednesday. WBUR's Allie Jarmanning dove into years of water quality data and tells us more about what goes into testing some of the places where people swim. On a cloudy June day in Gloucester, Bree Gray walks into the water at Good Harbor Creek. It's a shallow waterway flowing into the open ocean of Good Harbor Beach. I weighed out about three feet, which for me is like waist high and I'm facing incoming tide. She sweeps a plastic sample container into the water. A drone buzzes overhead. And I go about 12 inches, so like about elbow length for me. And that and then just discard a few millimeters off the top, and then that's it. Across Massachusetts, every week, people like Gray take water samples to make sure the state's beaches are clean enough for swimming. Most are. More than 95% of the time last year, the state's saltwater beaches passed muster. But occasionally, some beaches don't, and that can lead to closures. More than a thousand times last summer, swimmers at various beaches were warned not to go in the water, mostly because of high bacterial levels. That's been the issue in Gloucester, where two years ago, tests showed high bacteria levels seven times. So last year, we closed it out of an abundance of caution while we waited for the larger investigation that we were working on took place. Jill Cahill is the chief administrative officer in Gloucester. Nearly all summer, the beach at Good Harbor Creek was closed to swimming while city officials worked to figure out what was causing those high tests. They spent $120,000 on consultants who worked to pinpoint what was causing the problem. There wasn't a clear answer. We still don't have any one item to point to that we can say this is the cause and this is how we'll fix it. So far this year, the testing has looked good and the creek has stayed open. Our beaches are really our greatest natural resources. They're a big part of who the people who live here in Gloucester are and why people come to visit. So we we don't want to have beach closures when we only have really two or three good months of beach seasons. Statewide testing data going back more than a dozen years show water quality at saltwater beaches across the state has gone up and down. On average, around 420 tests come back high each summer. That's about 5% of the time. But in 2021, there was a big spike, blamed on the very rainy summer. But all those tests are just a snapshot in time, and water quality can change quickly. Kelly Coughlin has worked in water quality monitoring for more than 25 years. It's always been a pretty flawed system because your bacteria results are always a day late. The technology just isn't there yet to allow accurate real-time prediction. Chris Mancini knows that issue well. He's executive director of Save the Harbor, Save the Bay. The organization focuses on Boston Harbor and state beaches from Nahant to Nantasket. One study of Constitution Beach in East Boston found that every posted closure was wrong. The test was right for the day before, but because you don't get the test results for 24 hours, you put the flag up 24 hours later, and now you actually have clean water. You're actually taking beach days away from people. Just last week, Save the Harbor put out its annual report showing most of the metropolitan beaches saw better water quality than the previous year, helped by a particularly dry 2022. Still, Kings Beach in Lynn and Tinian Beach in Dorchester struggled. On average, over the last few years, more than seven out of every 10 tests failed. 
And Lynn, the issue is stormwater discharge. City officials are looking for $25 million for a UV light system to kill bacteria. In Gloucester, families have always flocked to the creek, drawn to the calm and shallow waters compared to the open ocean. The lake, like the deep water, but it's too big for me, so I had to go to small. That's six-year-old Mark playing in the sand near the creek. His dad, Mike Popolo, says this spot is perfect for his two kids. You know, they're scared of the big waves, and usually this water is a little bit warmer. They love it, but the last couple years we haven't been able to go in. I guess this year it's, it's open now, so I'll take it. Gloucester residents and officials hope it stays that way. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Germani. Coming up in about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, a new strategy to try to make shipping more environmentally friendly. It's nine minutes before eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Here are some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Some human rights groups are unhappy with the Biden administration's decision to provide Ukraine with controversial cluster munitions. The gunman who killed 23 people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas in 2019 is due to be sentenced today. And the Food and Drug Administration has granted full approval for an Alzheimer's drug made in part by Cambridge-based Biogen. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Decades before the Supreme Court's recent ruling striking down affirmative action, voters in California did the same, ending affirmative action in the nation's largest state higher ed system. California offers lessons because it has struggled with this for 25 years and has demonstrated how you can increase diversity without the use of race in admissions. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, sunshine today, highs around 90 degrees. A few clouds tonight with lows near 70. And tomorrow should be partly sunny, maybe some afternoon showers, highs in the 80s. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Presidential candidates are ramping up their campaigning in New Hampshire ahead of next year's election. State law requires it to hold the first primary in the country. But President Biden is proposing that South Carolina votes first in the Democratic race. The dispute means it's unlikely his name will be on the New Hampshire ballot, leaving an opening for his challengers. Here's New Hampshire's Public Radio's Josh Rogers. In some ways, it feels almost like any other New Hampshire summer in the run-up to a presidential primary. Big-name candidates are showing up and doing their thing. We're going to finish what we started and we will make America great again. But for Democrats, the presidential campaign trail these days has a less familiar feel. We need a public health response and not a not the response where Americans feel that their civil rights are being taken from us. That's Democratic candidate Robert Kennedy, environmental lawyer and vaccine skeptic, campaigning at Porkfest, a libertarian camp out high in the White Mountains. 
At this event, where freedom can mean public nudity, carrying an assault rifle, or both at once, Kennedy's conspiracy-tinged speech went over big. Carla Garrick, a prominent New Hampshire libertarian, was quick to judge it a winning approach. If you can speak across the aisle, like Kennedy chose to do today, those are the people who are successful in New Hampshire. I think his message is going to resonate. In fact, I think he might smoke Biden. The idea of a Democrat like Kennedy beating, let alone smoking, the incumbent president feels far-fetched. But Kennedy isn't the only candidate aiming to convince voters anything is possible. New Hampshire is a very interesting vortex. Author and spiritual advisor Marianne Williamson stood barefoot in front of a large gong at a Manchester healing studio. A small audience sat on yoga mats and nodded as Williamson talked about universal health care, free public college, and beating the odds. It doesn't really matter what the national press is saying. really doesn't matter what the pundits are saying. really doesn't matter what the political rags are saying. What matters is what the voters in New Hampshire are saying. There is truth in that, and it's also true that no incumbent president seeking another term has lost the New Hampshire primary. But Joe Biden's plan to displace overwhelmingly white New Hampshire's leadoff primary in favor of South Carolina, where black voters dominate the Democratic electorate and Biden notched his first win in 2020, has stung politicos here. Former New Hampshire House Speaker Steve Shurtleff endorsed Biden as soon as he got into the race four years ago. Shirtliff says right now it will take some convincing for him to again pull the lever for Biden. I may end up voting for the president, but I'm very disappointed in what he's done to our New Hampshire primary without any real justification. Despite the hard feelings of some key Democrats, polls here don't show Biden in any political danger. But even so, Kathy Sullivan, a former state party chair and Democratic National Committee member, is urging party regulars here to mount a Biden write-in campaign. If there is not a write-in, the alternative is that someone who is a fringe candidate may very well win the New Hampshire primary. And that is, I think, bad for the president. I think it's bad for New Hampshire because it will make us look like we are not serious voters. After holding the first primary for decades, there's no doubt New Hampshire voters see themselves as serious ones. But a challenge top Democrats here face as 2024 approaches is that President Biden may have a different view. After all, in 2020, Joe Biden finished fifth in the New Hampshire primary. Before that, no one who ended up winning the presidency had ever placed worse than second. For NPR News, I'm Josh Rogers in Concord, New Hampshire. Heat records have been set around the world this week. Global average temperatures soared, making July 4th the hottest day on record. How do we know that? Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk explains. Scientists, they track day-by-day data about the air temperature on Earth. They plug in millions of measurements from things on the ground or from satellites into a computer model. And that preliminary data shows that the average temperature on July 4th on planet Earth was the hottest on record. And it beat out the previous record, which was from August 2016, by about half a degree. One day, half a degree. That might not sound like a big deal, but Hersher says it really is this one really hot day, it's not that important all on its own. But it matters because it's part of a larger trend of record-breaking heat. The month of June this year was likely the hottest June ever recorded, and that's according to early data from the federal government. And it isn't just the U.S. dealing with dangerous temperatures. 
But it's also very hot in a lot of other parts of the world right now. So China, North Africa, the Middle East, millions of people are experiencing life-threatening heat. Hersher points out the rising temperatures are part of a pattern that began well before this summer. If we zoom out even more, we can see that the last eight years, they are the hottest eight years on record, going back all the way to the 1800s. So the Earth is getting steadily hotter, and that is because humans are changing the climate. But climate change is just part of the equation when it comes to this latest wave of sweltering heat. Climate change is a huge factor whenever we're talking about hot weather. And, of course, climate change is caused by humans burning fossil fuels and releasing greenhouse gases. Now, on top of human-caused climate change, there's also natural cyclic climate pattern that's happening right now called El Nino. El Nino just started in June. It will ramp up all year. It means extra hot water in the Pacific, which drives hotter worldwide average temperatures. So it's not surprising that we're seeing record-breaking heat right now. And all that means this year could be the hottest on record. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmidt. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has criticized China's treatment of U.S. companies during a visit to Beijing. It's Friday, July 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the U.S. decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine is facing criticism from some human rights groups. They lay there, oftentimes for years, and they act as landmines long after a war has ended. Also this hour, the FDA approval for an Alzheimer's drug partly created by Cambridge-based Biogen and increasing calls for President Biden to fulfill pledges he made to progressives, plus the shipping industry working on a new strategy to try to phase out greenhouse gases. Forecast says sunny today, highs near 90, some showers this weekend. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Wall Street and the Federal Reserve will get the latest look at job growth in the U.S. when the Labor Department reports on June employment this morning. As NPR's Scott Horsley reports, hiring in recent months has been stronger than analysts have been forecasting. Forecasters think U.S. employers added fewer new jobs in June than the 339,000 that were added the month before, but there's no guarantee. The job market has shown remarkable resilience in recent months despite inflation and the rising interest rates designed to control prices. The payroll processing company ADP counted nearly half a million new private sector jobs last month, with most of the gains coming from in-person services, such as restaurants and recreation. New claims for unemployment benefits, which tend to track with layoffs, inched up last week. Today's jobs report is one of the factors Federal Reserve officials will consider as they try to decide whether to raise interest rates again later this month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. 
Hot, dry conditions continue to make things more difficult for crews battling wildfires in the western U.S. The National Interagency Fire Center says 17 large fires are burning in five states, nearly half in Arizona. Red flag warnings are in effect in northern Arizona and northern New Mexico, along with areas of Colorado and Utah. Phoenix is under an excessive heat warning, with forecasters calling for an afternoon high of 108 degrees. In Canada, above average temperatures and drought conditions are forecast through August, and firefighters there are battling a record number of wildfires. Dan Karpinchuk reports. Natural Resources Canada says drought is the major contributing factor that will affect parts of all provinces and territories and is intensifying in some areas. The Director General of the Northern Forestry Centre says when drought is coupled with forecasts of higher than normal temperatures, it's expected there will be even more wildfires. Those conditions will likely increase wildfire risk from British Columbia to western Labrador. Officials say there have been more than 3,400 forest fires this season, well above the 10-year average. There are now nearly 650 fires burning, more than half of them out of control. About 34,000 square miles of forest have burned, and so far wildfires have forced 155,000 people from their homes. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. Vice President Kamala Harris visited the Gila River Indian community in Arizona yesterday as part of the Biden administration's Investing in America tour. We are committed to make sure all Native communities are places of economic opportunity. In this community, in every Native community across the country. The visit was also meant to highlight the administration's commitment to tribal nations and native communities. This is NPR News in Washington. 24-year-old Patrick Crucius awaits sentencing today in El Paso, Texas, for one of the deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history. The racist attack at a Walmart in 2019 left 23 people dead. There are questions now about legacy college admissions, giving children of alumni a leg up after the Supreme Court's decision to remove racial preference from the college admission process. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarney reports. This week, a legal nonprofit in Boston filed a civil rights complaint with the Education Department against Harvard, saying legacy gives an unfair advantage to family members of alumni, a group that is largely white. The admissions data from Harvard used in the Supreme Court trial show that applicants with legacy are about five times more likely to get in than those without. That does not control for other admissions criteria. There have been previous movements to remove this practice from admissions. Several universities, including Texas A&M and the University of Georgia, stopped using legacy preference around the same time they stopped using race in the admissions process. So there is a history of these two factors being related. Alyssa Nadwarney, NPR News. New York City's new pay rules for food delivery workers are slated to take effect next Wednesday. But before that, Uber Eats, DoorDash and Grubhub are suing to block the rule. New York City is mandating an increased pay rate of $17.96 an hour. In their lawsuits, the app-based delivery services say the change, which could eventually triple average delivery earnings, will mean higher consumer costs. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The Boston City Council's in a state of turmoil and more changes in store with the departure of its longest-serving member. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, South Boston at-large Councilor Michael Flaherty won't seek re-election after 20 years on the council. 
Flaherty's announcement late Wednesday night came as a surprise. He had filed papers to run for an 11th term, but now he's withdrawing against the backdrop of a body plagued by political infighting and personal attacks. Former Councillor John Tobin says Flaherty's departure will be a loss. His recall of people's names and where they're from and what wooden precinct, he could tell you the color house you lived in if you gave him the address. Flaherty has been increasingly at odds with the more progressive wing of the council, fighting over issues like new district lines and the police budget. It's time to turn the page, he says, and move on to the next chapter of his life. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A high-ranking prosecutor in the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office has been cleared of misconduct charges. Mark Lee is back on the job after a month-long independent investigation found that he did not withhold evidence in the case of Robert Foxworth. Foxworth's murder conviction was thrown out in 2020. Lee then had served as deputy chief of the DA's homicide unit. And DA Kevin Hayden tells the Boston Globe that Lee will now be promoted to head of the homicide unit. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell's office has released regulations designed to protect the information of undocumented immigrants looking to get a driver's license. Nirvani Williams reports that those drivers became eligible for licenses at the start of this month. Campbell's regulations include keeping personal information undocumented immigrants disclose on RMV applications private and will not be shared with U.S. Immigrant and Customs Enforcement. Javier Loengo Garrido is an organizing strategist for the ACLU and says it's important that people voted in support of the Work and Family Mobility Act back in the November 2022 election. That's a really good sign for the legislators and for the legislative process because now you know that people in Massachusetts care about immigrant rights. Garrido says the ACLU has been working in partnership with immigrant advocacy coalitions to host informational sessions and workshops for undocumented immigrants looking to apply for a license. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. The 225-year-old Golden Dome on the top of the Massachusetts State House needs some repairs. Part of the cupola broke and dented the dome earlier this year. Engineers tell the Boston Globe they had to repair it with some temporary bracing and chicken wire. The dome was last repaired more than 25 years ago, and state officials say they're not sure if or when repairs might take place or how much those might cost. The time is nine minutes past eight. WBUR supporters include Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. In sports, Red Sox beat the Texas Rangers 10-6 to at Fenway last night. The Sox begin a weekend series with the Oakland A's tonight. Our weather forecast is calling for sunshine today. Highs up around 90 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds with lows near 70. For the weekend, some afternoon showers possible tomorrow. Temperatures will be in the 80s. Clouds on Sunday with a chance of evening showers and highs in the 80s. It is 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Coming up, we'll talk with NPR's Jackie Northam about how the international shipping industry plans to phase out greenhouse gas emissions. But first, the Food and Drug Administration has approved the first drug shown to slow down Alzheimer's disease. The approval means many Medicare patients will now have access to the drug called Lakembi. NPR's John Hamilton has more. 
Lakembi, also called lecanemab, appears to slow declines in memory and thinking by about 27% among patients in the early stages of Alzheimer's. Dr. Sanjeev Vashnavi, a neurologist at the University of Pennsylvania, says that's enough to make a difference. It's not a home run. It's not something that's going to stop the disease or reverse it, but it may slow down progression of the disease and may give people more meaningful or quality time with their families. Lakembi removes a substance called amyloid from the brain. Vashnavi says the buildup of amyloid is part of the process that leads to dementia. I think it's very exciting that we're entering into a precision medicine era where we're targeting the actual pathology of the disease. The federal Medicare health insurance program has agreed to cover the treatment for patients who have early signs of Alzheimer's and elevated levels of amyloid. That's potentially more than a million people. But Vashnavi expects use of the drug to be limited at first, in part because of its side effects. People are aware of it, um, but I think they are a little wary because they do hear about bleeding or swelling in the brain, and they are concerned, and I think rightfully so. Also, Lakembi requires an intravenous infusion every other week and periodic brain scans to detect side effects. Joanne Pike is president and CEO of the Alzheimer's Association. She says if lots of patients do want the drug, the U.S. simply isn't ready to start treating them. We don't have enough specialists who understand how to provide this treatment. Uh, we don't have enough primary care physicians with knowledge and the confidence to diagnose or provide a referral. Pike says even so, Lakembi's approval represents the start of a new era. This is an incredible point for the Alzheimer's cause overall to even be having this conversation to say there is a treatment. Especially one that isn't burdened with controversy. Two years ago, the FDA granted conditional approval to a drug called Aduhelm. It also removed amyloid from the brain, but it was unclear whether Aduhelm slowed down the loss of memory and thinking. So many doctors refused to prescribe it, and Medicare declined to cover the drug. Pike says Lakembi shouldn't have those problems. It seems that the scientific and clinician community understands the, the difference in this moment with Lakembi versus Aduhelm. What scientists have learned about Lakembi is thanks to people like this couple in St. Charles, Missouri. I am Ken Bell. I'm Susan Bell. And what are your ages? I am 77. And I am, what am I? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> you are 70 right now. 70. Susan began showing signs of Alzheimer's about four years ago, so she enrolled in a clinical trial of Lakembi at Washington University in St. Louis. Ken and Susan say the drug hasn't halted her disease. There has been uh, some degradation in her uh, cognitive powers and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the decline has been relatively slow. The couple are still able to travel and play golf. Ken says that might be because the drug is working. We don't have enough experience like the medical folks do to determine what would have happened? What is normal? Still, Susan thinks other people in the early stages of Alzheimer's should try Lakembi. I would tell them, go for it, because you really don't have anything to lose, is the way I put it. In the next year or so, doctors should get a better idea of how many people are following that advice. John Hamilton, NPR News. President Biden made some major promises to the more progressive wing of his party on his way to the White House. He said he'd forgive student loans and new drilling on federal lands and make two years of community college free for all. So far, his record on delivering on these promises has been mixed. 
And in the run-up to 2024, some progressive voters and activists want Biden to do more and do it faster. Deepa Shivaram covers the White House for NPR and is with us once again to tell us more about this story. Good morning. Hey, Michelle. So let's start with student loans. The Supreme Court blocked Biden's debt relief plan last week. Obviously a disappointment for people who are counting on that, even maybe budgeting for that. But how are progressive voters responding to that? And I'm particularly interested in if they blame Biden or the court for their disappointment about all this. Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of a sentiment among some progressive voters that Biden overpromised on forgiving student debt. You heard the president say that he knows people are disappointed, but he rejected that he gave people false hope and he's trying to lay the blame on Republicans. But what has also stood out to progressive groups that I spoke with is that Biden bounced back with another plan immediately. It'll take longer, but they were happy that Biden didn't just throw his hands up on this issue. And they think he should apply that same strategy to some other issues as well. Here's Joseph Givargis. He's with a group called Our Revolution. It's a political organization which was started by supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders. It's a mixed bag. The president's made a down payment, but he's got to fight like hell in the remaining period of time to show voters that he's doing everything in his power to deliver on the pocketbook issues that matter to him. So a mixed bag. Deepa, does that suggest that it's going to cut into support for the president in 2024? That is a matter of enthusiasm. I talked to Adam Green, who's the co-chair of the Progressive Change Campaign Committee. It's a group that backed lawmakers like Senator Elizabeth Warren. But he says Biden is doing something effective. And that's the strategy of drawing contrasts with his own agenda and the agenda of right-wing Republicans. It's very important that Joe Biden, on behalf of all Democrats, picks very high-intensity fights with Republicans on things like economics, abortion, and democracy. He really needs to make clear what the battle lines are so that regular people who live busy lives say, oh, I actually care about that. It's worth my time to vote. And we already know that with abortion specifically, public opinion on the issue isn't in line with what Republicans are calling for. And that's a message that Biden will be taking to the trail in 2024. So say more about that. Where do progressive groups think Biden can still take more aggressive action? There's some unfinished business, things like childcare, universal pre-K that Biden's going to run on again. But climate action is a big issue where a lot of voters feel like Biden has backed out on what he promised in 2020. For example, the president campaigned on promises to end new drilling on federal lands in order to rein in emissions. But he approved a new venture in Alaska called the Willow Project earlier this year. Millions of people petitioned against it. And climate activists see it as the total about face and a disappointment for people who voted for Biden based on his climate agenda. But I'll add here that Biden has already picked up a number of endorsements from environmental and conservation groups, and he's campaigning hard on his record on investing in clean energy projects. That is NPR's Deepa Shivram. Deepa, thank you. Thank you. On any given day, roughly 60,000 ships carrying everything from appliances to sneakers are plying the world's waterways. An international shipping conference this week in London is trying to adopt a new strategy to phase out greenhouse gases created by the industry. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam is following this and joins us now. Good morning, Jackie. Morning, Rob. So before we get into what they're trying to accomplish, set the stage for us. How big a role does shipping play in CO2 emissions? Well, I spoke with the International Maritime Organization, and that's a UN agency that regulates shipping on the seas and organized this conference. They told me their last study five years ago found that tankers and cargo ships produce 740 million tons of CO2 a year, and that's nearly 3% of global emissions, more than a country the size of Germany produces in a year. Wow. 
The IMO released a strategy a few years back with a goal of reducing those emissions by half by 2050. And Rob, that was broadly seen as inadequate, just not enough. So the discussions this time around, and I understand they're fairly heated talks, is to decide how aggressive the industry should be in cutting emissions. Uh, the Biden administration, which is trying to reshape globalization, wants them to be cut 100% by 2050. Hmm. But for other member states, including China and other developing nations, that's just far too ambitious, and they want to take it much slower. So what are some of the options out there for the shipping industry to try and phase out these emissions of greenhouse gases? You know, there are ways to improve energy efficiency, such as using LED lights and solar panels and reducing speed. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also synthetic or clean fuels, such as green hydrogen and green ammonia. Uh, carbon price for shipping could be introduced. And then there's this trend to go back to the olden days and use wind to power the vessel. Oh, wow. You know, basically, massive kites on the bow of the ship, huh. or there's sails that can be retrofitted and used with the uh, vessel's engine, so a hybrid of the seas, if you like. Right. And then there's this new line of really futuristic-looking ships being developed that will be powered solely by wind. So there's new technology out there, but you know it all costs money. Yeah, of course. And so at the end of this conference, there will be a new strategy on how much the shipping industry should reduce CO2 emissions. And by when, will all ships have to adhere to these new rules and how will they be enforced? Well, there's not a global enforcement body. Uh, all 175 member states of the International Maritime Organization will have to sign on to a new strategy to reduce emissions. And it's up to each of those countries to make sure that ships are meeting the standards. Um, I spoke with Natasha Brown, a spokesperson for the IMO, and she says some of the big shipping companies are already, you know, taking it upon themselves to cut emissions. Here she is. They're already quite far ahead in decarbonizing and building new ships that are ready to run on some of these new fuels that are going to come in, and they're ready quite far advanced in that process. You know, Rob, at the end of the day, if there is an agreement to really aggressively curb emissions in the shipping industry, it'll be a big deal. Wow, that's NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam. Jackie, thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, after massive precipitation this year, California's long dry Tulare Lake is back, and the indigenous tribe that once built its community around it is celebrating. Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for starting your day with us. In about 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll hear the latest on the contract talks with UPS, where a strike is imminent for some 340,000 workers. It's 21 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. 
the Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. In our weather forecast, sunshine today, highs around 90 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds with lows near 70. Tomorrow should be partly sunny, maybe some afternoon showers. Temperatures in the 80s and for Sunday, mostly cloudy, a chance of evening showers and highs near 80 degrees. It's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Michelle Martin. The man who killed 23 people and wounded more than 20 others at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, is due to be sentenced today. Over the past two days, victims and relatives of those killed in the 2019 shooting got to confront the gunman in federal court. Patrick Crucius pleaded guilty earlier this year to all 90 federal charges in connection with the shooting. KTEP's Aaron Montes has this report. Francisco Rodriguez was on his way into the federal courtroom wearing a t-shirt with the image of his son, Javier. He got to make a victim impact statement as part of the sentencing hearing, where he dared the man who murdered his son to look at it. So that he can see uh, who he killed. He he killed a 15-year-old. He didn't even know him. Javier was the youngest person gunned down by Patrick Crucius at a busy El Paso Walmart on a Saturday morning in August, four years ago. Rodriguez still celebrates his son's birthday. I go to the cemetery and and sing happy birthday to him. Crucius, now 24, drove 600 miles from a Dallas suburb to carry out the attack, telling police he came to kill, quote, Mexicans, and posted on an extremist social media site that he wanted to stop the, quote, Hispanic invasion of Texas. He wanted to take down Mexicans. He wanted to get rid of the Hispanic people here in El Paso. But he didn't do that. He failed. Amaris Vega was among those who filled the federal courtroom to give a victim impact statement. And now he's in a room full of Hispanic people. And he didn't win. We're still here and we're not going anywhere. For two full days now, people of all ages have been filling the courtroom. They let out their anger and frustration at the gunman, calling him the devil, a monster, and repeatedly referring to him as a coward. More than half of those killed at the Walmart were over 60. The oldest victim was a 90-year-old man. Vega's mother and grandmother were wounded but survived. Her 82-year-old aunt, Teresa Sanchez, died. Her brother, Christopher Marmolejo, said there is still a threat from extremists. He's a white supremacist, and there's a million of them out there. 
Crucius is expected to serve 90 consecutive life sentences in federal prison. He could get the death penalty when the case is tried by the state of Texas. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Montes in El Paso. It's time for StoryCorps. When Tom Badgett sat down for an interview with his daughter, Jordan Pirelli, he remembered growing up in small-town Tennessee during the 1950s and his complicated relationship with his dad. I've heard you say before, I walk by a mirror and I think it's my father. I do. It's creepy sometimes. (laughs) So tell me about him. Well, he was president of a major community bank. But if I were to try to summarize his overall personality when I was young, I'd have to say distant. I remember mother saying he was a good provider, but he never changed a diaper and never fed a kid. He came home from work and went straight to a bottle. He was drunk, really drunk. A lot of the time, I remember him going out in the backyard and kind of falling down and going to sleep in the middle of the day on Saturday. And when I was nine, I'm in the garage and there's this blanket over something in my wagon. I pulled the blanket aside and it's my neighbor's mailbox. Well, dad came home late and he made the curve a little long and took the mailbox with him. So do you have a memory of a time where he really came through for you? Yeah. It's a Sunday morning and he says, let's go take a drive. We're driving in his 56 Ford. I've got to be 15. He says, you want to drive? Now, why that's funny is a couple of months before, mother and dad go to Florida and leave me there because I'm in school. And I teach myself to drive his car. (laughs) And he knew that, of course. I wondered. (laughs) I said, "Uh, uh, uh, okay, I'll drive. Well, we met a car. And he said, always look to the side of the road. Look where you want to go, not what you're trying to avoid. And that rings in my ears every time I try to make a decision. Look where you want to go. Hmm. After he died, what did you learn about him that surprised you? I came in for the funeral. And people are coming in and saying, your dad's going to be missed. Or I can't tell you how thankful I am what your dad did for me when uh, he was at the bank. But one guy, obviously a farmer, I mean, he was at his funeral wearing overalls, boots, beard. He takes my hand and he said, you know, your dad knew I couldn't afford that loan, but he gave it to me anyway. And I paid back every damn penny of it. And that stuck with me because we didn't always see that level of care at home. But as I look back, he was there in the way he could be. Hmm. We are the sum of all of our parts. That's Tom Badgett and Jordan Pirelli for StoryCorps in Knoxville, Tennessee. Their interview is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. 
Coming up tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition, some people use Kratom for pain management, others use it as a narcotic. Now several families of fatal Kratom overdose victims are suing the gas stations and vape shops that sold the herb. Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, questions about the recent survey ranking Massachusetts as having the best health care system in the country. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. This is day two of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's trip to China. The White House is downplaying expectations as Yellen attends a series of meetings with Chinese officials. NPR's Emily Fang says earlier today, Yellen spoke to a group of American business executives where she expressed concerns about China's economic practices. Yellen met with American businesses at a roundtable hosted by the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing right before she headed off to meet China's premier. Yellen said she told Chinese officials the U.S. was concerned about China's use of non-market tools like expanded subsidies for its state-owned enterprises, as well as barriers to market access for foreign firms. She also said the U.S. was assessing the impact of new Chinese export controls on two metals used in semiconductor chips. In the past year, China's detained local employees at American consultancy Bain & Co. and passed a new counter-espionage law that businesses say endangers their normal operations. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Scientists at the University of Maine say the Earth's average temperature hit another record high yesterday when it reached 63 degrees Fahrenheit. That mark was slightly higher than what was recorded on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, though yesterday's average is a preliminary reading. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Drivers are crawling through the Ted Williams Tunnel this morning as they navigate the closure of the Sumner Tunnel, although the backup is down from what it was about an hour ago. The link between East Boston and downtown closed on Wednesday and will stay that way through August for a construction project. Community advocates say they want to see more plans for how ambulances and emergency vehicles will get through the closure in case of an emergency at Logan Airport. Brian Kane, who's executive director of the MBTA Advisory Board, spoke on WBUR's Radio Boston yesterday. If there were a need or, or a mass casualty event and a need to get a bunch of people to the trauma centers, which are in downtown, I worry that the infrastructure will be able to support that. I imagine they could get through the Ted Williams Tunnel, sort of, but it would not be pretty. State highway officials say there are plans in place to deal with a major emergency. There are fewer state beaches open to cool off in this hot weather. This week, at least 20 Massachusetts saltwater beaches were closed because of high bacteria levels. WBUR's Ellie Jarmanning reports that much of that can be blamed on heavy rains on the 4th of July. Health officials test water quality regularly to make sure it's clean enough for swimming. 
but there's a lag time in results. Yesterday's bad test is today's beach closure. Kelly Coughlin has worked in water quality for 25 years. That's the big challenge of a beach manager is you're constantly trying to balance access versus protection. She says no one wants to see a closed sign on a hot July day. Last summer, the state's saltwater beaches were closed more than a thousand times. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. A Maine pyrotechnics company is facing some questions after dozens of its unexploded fireworks washed up on a beach on Martha's Vineyard. Investigators believe the fireworks that washed up Wednesday were left over from a show run by the company Central Maine Pyrotechnics. Massachusetts fire officials say they're concerned that more explosives could wash up on the beach. In sports, Red Sox topped the Rangers 10-6 to at Fenway last night. Boston took two out of three from Texas. The Sox will host the Oakland A's tonight. In our weather forecast, mostly sunny today. Highs around 90 degrees. Tonight, a few clouds with lows near 70. For the weekend, partly sunny tomorrow, maybe some afternoon showers. Temperatures in the 80s. Clouds on Sunday with evening showers likely. Highs near 80 degrees and looks like rain in the forecast for Monday. 74 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmidt. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. The Biden administration is expected to announce today that it will send a new weapon to Ukraine, cluster bombs. These cluster munitions have been around for decades, and they've been effective in combat. But they're also controversial, and many nations have pledged not to use them. We were wondering why this is happening now, so we're joined by NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie in Ukraine's capital of Kyiv. Greg, thanks so much for being here. Sure thing, Michelle. So could you just give us a short explanation of what cluster munitions are and why they're so controversial? So a cluster bomb can be dropped from a plane, though the Ukrainians would likely be firing them from the ground in an artillery shell. And while the cluster bomb is in the air, it breaks open and releases dozens or even hundreds of little bomblets. And this can be very effective when used against troops spread out over a big area because there's not just one explosion. All these little bomblets are intended to explode over a a vast space the size of a city block or so. However, some bomblets are duds. They don't detonate. They're small. They remain on the ground. They can become embedded just below the surface. So years later, after a war is over, civilians can walk through these areas and step on the bomblets, causing them to explode and inflicting injury or death. For this reason, human rights groups say they shouldn't be used, really for the same reason they oppose landmines. But have they already been used in this war? Uh, Yes, they have. Russia has used them extensively in Ukraine to a lesser degree, according to research by Human Rights Watch. And more than 120 countries, including most NATO members, pledged not to use them under a 2008 convention. But Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. are not part of that agreement. Uh, The U.S. has used them in the past. I remember them as far back as the first U.S. war in Iraq in 1991. It just looked like a really bad golfer had left dozens of 
big divots all over the course, and that instantly grabbed your attention because when you saw this, you knew some unexploded bomblets were lurking nearby. So why is this so important to Ukraine, and, and why now? Yeah, the main reason this seems to be happening now is Ukraine is pressing this major offensive and it's running low on artillery shells. Ukraine is trying to break through Russian lines in the east and the south where the Russian troops are deeply entrenched. And the cluster munitions could be a very valuable weapon because you can hit a larger patch of territory with just one of these weapons compared to a conventional artillery shell. The U.S. has a large supply of them on the shelf, so it can presumably give them to Ukraine pretty quickly. And U.S. officials have told NPR that the dud rate has come down substantially. Uh, mine clearing groups used to talk about rates of 20 percent or more. The U.S. says it'll only be sending those with a dud rate of around 2 percent or less. Some critics, though, do question the Pentagon's claim that the rate is really this low. Greg, before we let you go, can you give us a quick update on the status of Ukraine's offensive? Yeah, the Ukrainian military gave a very specific answer this week, said Ukraine had retaken nine villages and 62 square miles since the offensive began a, a month ago. Now, these figures are very little changed over the last week or two, and it's much slower and more limited than many expected. That is NPR's Greg Myrie in Kiev. Greg, thank you. Sure thing, Michelle. United Parcel Service workers are threatening to go on strike. Contract negotiations between their union and UPS management broke down this week. They're running out of time to reach an agreement. The deadline is at the end of the month. The Teamsters union represents 340,000 UPS workers. That's over half of the company's workforce. Here to talk to us about what's at stake in these negotiations is Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien. Good morning. Good. Thank you. What do UPS workers want? Well, UPS workers want to be rewarded for their hard, especially in light of making UPS making record profits uh, during the pandemic. You know, our members went out there and sacrificed uh, their well-being to provide goods and services, and UPS made record profits, paid out record dividends, and now it's time for them to pay the people that actually make them the success, and that's our 340,000 Teamster members. So NPR reached out to UPS for comment. In a statement, the company said, quote, we are proud of what we've put forward in these negotiations and the Teamsters should return to the table to finalize this deal. So UPS management saying here the union has walked away. What has been the main sticking point between the union and UPS leadership? Well, first off, the union did not walk away at 4.15 a.m. on uh, July 5th. The company, uh, when we got into the part-time wage rates um, for starting wage rates and also uh, existing part-timers, you know, we made it clear that poverty, part-time poverty doesn't work, especially at UPS. And, and people don't realize this. You know, the drivers you see in your neighborhood, the men and women that are delivering packages, you know, UPS is saying they make $93,000, and they may, but they're working 10, 15 hours or overtime, no quality of life, <laughs> missing Little League games and et cetera. Um, but what they don't tell you is that there's unsung heroes in, in those facilities, part-timers that, you know, these trucks do not deliver packages unless they're loaded. And these part-timers are working at poverty wages. They need to drive the starting wage rate up, reward the people that have been there a long time and provide full-time opportunity for these folks. And, uh, you know, when we got into the negotiations uh, over the part-timers, UPS simply said, there's no more to give and said, we're not going to go any further. And that was it. So, you know, their story is compelling, but highly inaccurate. Got it. So if UPS workers 
do go on strike. This could lead to the biggest private sector strike since the 1950s. What would this mean for customers and what would it mean for the economy? Well, it's unfortunate that if UPS chooses to strike themselves and not concede to our demands, um, that they could be putting their business customers at risk. And, you know, like people say to us all the time, well, is not going to impact your members? It will. But, you know, like anything else, there's a little short term pain for a long term game. And, um, you know, UPS has to, you know, reward the people that have made them a success. And if there is a labor dispute and or a strike, that's going to be on UPS. They've chose to go down this road. So you hinted at this, but are, are you worried that under such a scenario that UPS competitors would take advantage of this strike and then taking, you know, taking market share out of UPS's business? Look, the one good thing is in a short term, I think, you know, there could be some some competition gaining some volume. But at the end of the day, the 340,000 Teamsters provide the best service in the industry and customers will come back just like they did in 1997 uh, when UPS chose back then to uh, similar situations was fighting fighting for part-timers and uh, look this is a, a team effort there's still some full-time issues out there that we need to address and look we're prepared to get back to the table but UPS needs to know that their last offer wasn't adequate and they know what they need to do to get us back to the table. That's Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien. Sean, thank you. All right. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on the Marketplace Morning Report in just about 10 minutes, 19 states, cities, and counties are raising the minimum wage this summer, according to the Economic Policy Institute. And although some of the increases are small, economists say they are valuable for low-wage workers dealing with inflation. In our weather forecast, sunshine today highs up around 90. Tonight, a few clouds with lows near 70. And for the weekend, partly sunny tomorrow. Scattered showers in the afternoon are possible. Temperatures will be in the 80s. Clouds on Sunday with a chance of showers Sunday night. Highs near 80 degrees. It is 74 in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. In business news, Mass General Brigham is launching a new effort to try to resolve some of the problems caused by the pandemic. The unified quality strategy is called For Every Patient. MGB tells the Boston Business Journal it's a set of practices meant to help the group's hospitals improve the quality of care. MGB says it'll take the next five years for those strategies to improve patient outcomes. A Waltham-based healthcare startup is the latest tech company in the state to lay off employees. Connect RN laid off about 20 percent of its almost 300-person staff. It's not clear how many workers in Massachusetts were affected. A Uber based development firm plans to build a new lab building near TD Garden. KS Partners plans to build an 11-story space in the Bullfinch Triangle. The new development would replace office buildings and a parking lot. The time is 8.45.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts' healthcare system recently ranked best in the country. The rankings from the New York based group, the Commonwealth Fund, were based on things such as access, reproductive care, and health outcomes. But the leader of a local healthcare alliance says that survey overlooked some crucial metrics. Barbara Rabson, CEO of Massachusetts Health Quality Partners, joins us to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So in the letter that was published in the Boston Globe, you said that Massachusetts healthcare really isn't a winner. You called it hospital-centric and said primary care and public health are both overlooked. Can you explain a little bit? Primary care is the only part of our healthcare system that provides preventive care and manages chronic diseases to keep patients well and out of the hospital. In fact, the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine recently called primary care the only part of the healthcare system that results in longer lives and more equity. And, and, and as such, it should be a public good that needs strong advocacy. So when this report came out, uh, scoring Massachusetts n- number one, I mean, there's certainly things for us to be proud about, but the things that we scored poorly on are, are the foundation of our healthcare system. And so it, 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 it seemed very uh, inappropriate for us to be congratulating ourselves when our, our system is known to have such uh, we're having a crisis in our primary care system, in behavioral health, and, and public health. And so, so just briefly, how do you think that translates to the patient? You know, we can argue about how metrics are measured, but what does it mean on the ground for healthcare? What it means is when you might have had a relationship with a primary care uh, for a long time, and and that primary care retired on you. Um, so many people are looking for a primary care provider. And when they finally find one, uh, they're told it's weeks or months to get in uh, to have access uh, for an appointment. And in some cases, this really impacts your life. I mean, it, it, it can, uh, if you can't see a clinician, what what a primary care clinician, what mean, that means is you go to alternatives. And sometimes you end up going to way more costly care. Uh, so are, are certain communities more affected than others? Well, what we're finding is that all across Massachusetts, there's definitely pockets where it's hard to get into primary care. Um, there's a, Southeastern Mass is a place in particular that we highlighted for pediatricians that it's really hard to get in for pediatric care. But there, there are pockets all over, um, all over the state. Mm. So, what are the biggest changes you think need to be made? Well, there's there's a number of things that we need to do. We certainly need to invest in primary care. Um, we need to redistribute our funds. There's so little investment in this part of the system 
And the whole system will fracture if we don't have a robust primary care system where patients can go as their first contact and continuity of care. And we're already beginning to see the cracks. And the cracks in our system are the patient wait times, the inability to find a primary care, backups in the emergency departments. So we can't take primary care for granted. And the system will you know, we won't be there if we won't take care of it. Um, there's legislation pending to better support primary care in Massachusetts. We should support that. We need to enact, there's a huge shortage of primary care clinicians across the entire primary care team. We need to enact a school student loan forgiveness and, and increase wages so they're more equitable across all specialties. And we really need to work together on this issue. When COVID hit and, and Massachusetts healthcare works so closely together to really address the COVID pandemic, we need to do the same thing. We've got a crisis of affordability and we need to do the same thing. All right, Barbara Rabson, CEO of Massachusetts Health Quality Partners. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Stay with WBUR for the BBC coming up at 9 o'clock this morning. On the show today, they'll have the latest on the new international arms going to Ukraine to help it fight Russia. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. And Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org answers. Some of the stories we're following here at WBUR this morning. The Labor Department says U.S. employers added more than 200,000 jobs last month, with the unemployment rate dipping to 3.6 percent. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is voicing some criticism of Chinese business practices on her visit to Beijing. And for the first time, federal regulators have granted full approval of a new Alzheimer's drug, one developed in part with Cambridge-based Biogen. You can stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. Forecast says mostly sunny today, highs around 90. It's 74 in Boston. The labor market remains strong, but hiring was not as high as expected in the new data out just now. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. I'm David Brancaccio. The Fresh Jobs Report this morning finds 209,000 more names were on payrolls in June. A parallel survey of households covering people either working or actively looking for work finds the unemployment rate dropping slightly, 3.6 percent now. Economist Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives and president of the National Association for Business Economics joins us. Julia, for once, a downside surprise. Yeah, the first in more than a year, although, you know, the drop in the unemployment rate confirms it's still a healthy labor market. Healthy labor market. Where was the hiring? Typically, we think these days, hotels, restaurants, not this time. 
No, actually, uh, retail was laying off workers, as was the tech industry and the temporary health industry. Most of the hiring was either state and local governments or private health care, which are still in catch-up mode. Still in catch-up mode. That's interesting. A lot of government jobs, though, right? Yeah, a lot of teachers being rehired uh, and other sort of state and local uh, support workers. All right. Wages, though, still ticking up for those wary of inflation. Still something to worry about. Yeah. So wage growth has uh, gotten kind of stuck at above 4%. That's uncomfortable for the Fed. So more than likely they will move forward with another rate hike at their July meeting. All right. Happy, though, for people who got raises. Economist Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Stock index futures are mixed following the report. S&P futures are up just slightly. Dow futures are down slightly, 17 points. The 10-year interest rate is down only slightly, 4.06% still. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in China in an effort to put the U.S.-China relationship on a more even keel. Today, Janet Yellen spoke at a roundtable of representatives from U.S. companies doing business in China, and she's meeting with Chinese leaders, both past and present. My colleague Kai Rizdal is in China, traveling with the Treasury Secretary's media pool, and he joins me now from Beijing. Hey, Kai. Hey, dude. I thought the Biden administration was decoupling from China. The Treasury Secretary says, no, that's not what's happening. Oh, yeah, no. If you ask Janet Yellen about decoupling, she will definitely give you a very dirty look. They are being very emphatic here, Yellen and her staff, that what is happening is America is looking out for its own national security interests and trying to improve its own internal economic situation, but definitely not decoupling. So clearly, Secretary Yellen is trying to highlight areas of common ground. Yeah, I think, you know, the Secretary Yellen is over here representing American interests, of course, but she does want to see, number one, tensions come down, right? Things are not great between the United States and China right now. And when you've got the two biggest economies in the world not really getting on, that's not really a good thing. She is being very calm, I guess, is a word you would use. And Jenny Yellen is a calm woman. She's very steady, right? And she wants to make sure that everybody understands that America knows it's in our best interests to have a good relationship with China. She is trying to convince the Chinese of the same thing. And look, she is well-liked over here. She is well-respected. Because she is not a natural-born politician and has not come up through the ranks that way, but rather as an economist and a very serious policy woman, she brings a gravitas that the Chinese appreciate. One quote from Janet Yellen when she was speaking to executives from some big U.S.-based companies is getting some attention this morning. The secretary said, I've been particularly troubled by punitive actions that have been taken against U.S. firms in recent months. What do you make of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I've obviously been following the news and the coverage of that quote. I was in the room when she read her prepared remarks. And I'll tell you, I think it's probably the difference between print and audio. That was a line buried inside a mid-range paragraph in a page and a half statement. It was not delivered with any emphasis. It was not delivered at all in a special way. And I think what has happened is that people have taken that line and run with it. But Yellen did hear other issues from U.S. executives. You were there for that. 
Oh, yeah. And look, she has been hearing from American executives about some of the things that have happened, right? And Chinese employees of American companies have been arrested and detained. There are laws here, a new espionage law has been passed that is giving American executives some pause. And let's remember, she was speaking to the American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, so she knew her audience. That said, this remark is... I don't believe what Yellen would want to be highlighted because she really, really wants the American relationship to be steady. She wants it to be calmed a little bit, the American relationship with China, and at the same time knows that she has to look out for American companies. Marketplace's Kai Rizdahl covering the U.S. Treasury Secretary in China. Kai, thank you. David, good to talk to you. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by JLL, a commercial real estate partner dedicated to creating lasting change for good in business, communities, and the planet. JLL.com. See a brighter way. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. The government is proposing new rules to crack down on what the Biden administration calls junk insurance. These shorter-term health plans offer lower premiums, but the coverage can be crummy, leaving patients with expensive bills. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Short-term health insurance plans have been a contentious topic for years. The Obama administration in 2016 limited their use to three months to encourage more people to sign up for health care through Affordable Care Act marketplaces. The rationale was that Obamacare plans offer far more comprehensive coverage. Short-term plans are limited. Monthly premiums are lower, but they can discriminate against pre-existing conditions and impose strict coverage caps on things like hospital stays. For example, $1,000 a day for hospitalizations that can cost $10,000 a day. Still, the Trump administration sought to expand access to short-term health insurance, saying they can be a good deal for healthy people who have little need for coverage. In 2018, the administration changed the rules to allow people to sign up for short-term plans for about a year and renew the plans for up to three years. Now the Biden administration wants to reverse course again, back to three months, with the option to extend coverage to four months. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Our executive producer is Kelly Silvera. Our digital producer is Jordan Manji. Our engineers are Brian Allison and Nick Esposito. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Our weather forecast is calling for sunshine today. Highs up around 90. Tonight, a few clouds, lows near 70, partly sunny tomorrow. Scattered afternoon showers are possible. Temperatures in the 80s and mostly cloudy on Sunday. Maybe a shower or two and highs near 80 degrees. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.